Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 34 of The Lawyerist Podcast, our weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy our show, we would really appreciate it if you take 30 seconds and give us a rating in iTunes. So right now, we've got a great guide to law firm website design and our computer security guide on our website. Andrew Cubasso said about that security guide, check out this guide and secure your damn computers. Find out more and get the guides at lawyerist.com slash guides or click on guides at the top of the site. Use the code podcast to get 50% discount on your order. Just enter the word podcast into the checkout form. Sponsoring today's podcast is Ruby Receptionists. If you aren't already a customer, just know that you would be happier if you were. Sign up for a free trial at callruby.com slash lawyerist, and Ruby will answer your phones for free for two weeks. So there's an article in the Wall Street Journal, I think last week um, or earlier this week, that is a little pretty interesting about some trends in law firms. It's trends in large law firms, so the corollaries to small law firms might be a little loose, but the article is called Law Firms Pile on Posh Amenities to Build Up Business, Um, and it's about how a bunch of New York large law firms have been adding in dining rooms and wine bars and conference centers inside their offices in order to wine and dine and impress their corporate clients. Um, And it's fascinating in large part because it feels super misguided to me. Well, when's the last time you've ever been impressed by dinner at a conference center? So I th- I I'm not sure these are necessarily the same thing. So it's not that it's a dinner at a conference center, it's that some of the large law firms now have the ability to host dinners, some of them now have the ability to host conferences. I've been to conferences at large law firms that were really nice. Um and certainly big law firms are known for having really nice offices that are impressive in that sense. Um, Yeah, I I mean, aside, I'm not sure it's where I want to go for dinner. Sure, there's that. I think the bigger problem is if I'm their client, I know that it's my money and their profits off of my money that's paying for all this stuff, and it seems like a really strange use of money. It does. I, you know, I remember when I worked at a medium-sized firm, our clients were mostly insurance companies, and there was a whole code about kind of which cars you were you were allowed to buy and which ones would reflect poorly on the firm and might end up lowering our hourly rates that they were willing to pay. You know, it was it was fine to own a three series BMW, but if it were a five series BMW or a Porsche, it better be used. <laughs> so there's a great <laughs> quote in this article, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, the CEO of the Association of Corporate Counsel, in response to this new trend, says, the law firms who believe in-house counsel want to see them with marble tables and cappuccinos made to order are really fooling themselves. Um, and I think where it's this weird thing where the large law firm market keeps going in these like economic bubbles where they go on these tears, raising the starting salaries of new associates or going on trends of putting wine bars in their offices and then realize that there actually isn't sustainable economics to support such things and then pop. Well, and right now it's downward pressure on pricing, not craving more amenities. Right. 
And and there's some case to be made that for a few of these things, it's cheaper to have them in-house than to keep spending at the five-star restaurant in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, but even still, law firms are not in the business of making dinner. <laughs> right. And no in-house counsel is ever going to say to a colleague, boy, wouldn't it be great to go have dinner at, you know, Dewey Cheatham and Howe tonight? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So to small firms that are thinking about um, this, I mean, I still think it's a great idea to like host a scotch club in your office if you want uh, for your clients, but probably not. Don't don't start building a cafe in your conference room. That'd be my thought. <laughs> so today I'm talking to the vice president of Case Text about why it's so hard to get lawyers to collaborate and how to maybe possibly make it work. Hello, my name is Pablo Arredondo. I'm a vice president of legal research at Case Text and a fellow at the Stanford Center for Legal Informatics. Uh, prior to joining Case Text, I worked as a patent litigator in California and in New York. Well, welcome. I'm so glad to have you here. And let me start by giving you a chance to just talk a little bit about Case Text, with I, which I think is a really cool thing that you're doing. So tell me about it. All right. Well, great to be here. Um, Case Text is a legal research platform, a full-fledged legal research platform with uh, uh, cases and statutes, um, where we're trying to annotate and curate these primary legal materials with useful secondary analysis um, from people within the legal community. So it's kind of a getting a jump start on your legal analysis. You get to look up a case on Case, case Text, and you can see what other people are saying about it, right? Exactly. And is this meant to be a primary legal research platform? Like maybe now or soon I'll be able to um, go to case text first instead of Westlaw or Fastcase? Well, I think um, certainly in the long run, I think we'd love to create a full system that you can use um, almost exclusively. Um, It's interesting, though. I think the ABA just did a study um, that showed that increasingly associates are using Google. Um, as their their search, uh, their first stop for searching. And I don't mean Google Scholar. I mean, they're actually just typing it into Google. Um, and so to the extent that they're doing that to try to get this kind of content, right, this sort of uh, condensed, easy-to-digest uh, analysis, I think Case Tech certainly could be, uh, could be that. So you said you're a fellow at Stanford in doing legal informatics. What is legal informatics? Uh, legal informatics uh, broadly is uh, anything that has to do with the technology that underpins the legal profession. Um, and there really is a wide range uh, that goes into that. Um, some of my colleagues are working on projects to, say, automate, uh, automate contracts um, uh, so that you could uh, you know, basically remove the need to have certain types of transactional lawyers. Um, uh, it also includes uh, the stuff that we're working on, which is basically information retrieval, legal research, and that sort of thing. Cool. That's a word I hadn't heard before. I like it. Um, So I I wanted to have you on today to talk not about case text, although I think it's cool, but about um, the challenges that come with getting lawyers to participate in things. And, uh, you know, that's what you're doing. You're trying to get lawyers to um, to talk about cases, to annotate cases, to say interesting things about cases. But there's all sorts of other examples of that out there, right? I mean, um, I know just today the the CEO of Foxworthy, which purports to be a social network for lawyers, just posted something 
Um, when we were ta- chatting before the show, you mentioned um, Westlaw's current or failed. I'm not sure if it's yet failed officially, but it seems like it's going under. Um, their their attempt to build the social networking features into its their elite platform. Um, there's just there you know there's uh, the gen- rap genius tried to create a law genius extension that um, almost no lawyers seem to be using. There seems to be a challenge with getting lawyers to actually add any information or com- be a part of a community online. Right, right. I think I think that that's very fair. Um, and uh, you know, I, I uh, it's a deep question. Sort of, what are the different reasons? Um, some that have occurred to me um, would be, you know, lawyers for the most part are used to uh, working with privileged information, right, and not sharing information, um, uh, not just with the public, but sort of with anybody. You know, I mean, it's it's very severe rules about that, and that mentality uh, might be a little bit adverse to the sense of creating a public community where information is shared. Um, I think another issue that might be uh, more true for litigators and other types of lawyers is we have an adversarial system, right? Um, lawyers are used to going up and fighting against other lawyers. Uh, and I think that uh, that is very different um, than other uh, professions, say like engineering, right? Where you don't have that sort of uh, ingrained sense of uh, versus, right? Me versus you. Um, so those are two reasons that come to my mind. Well, another piece of it is it's not even just, you know, legal Platforms. I think Bob Ambrogi talked about, you know, he, the walled garden is how he likes to think about it. But um, I remember at ABA Tech Show this year, um, you know, the, the legal ABA's Legal Technology Resource Center does a big technology survey every year. And, and it showed that lawyers were using Facebook in much smaller numbers than the regular population. Right. And that, that's really interesting. And that also gets to another, you know, sort of big issue, which is do lawyers have time to participate in anything except for practicing law, right? I mean, we know that this is one of the most demanding professions in terms of your, your you know, how many hours are, are required. I suppose. I mean, my, my brain went immediately to what the heck is wrong with lawyers? Don't they want to see pictures of their grandkids too? <laughs> um, <laughs> or, right. or share pictures of their own kids? I mean, it's it, it's interesting to me that like, this is how the world communicates right now, and lawyers are somehow not taking part in that. Right, and you almost wonder, uh, is that why Facebook has been so successful with everybody else, right? Is that it's lawyer-free? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's figured yeah, out no. the magic formula to exclude lawyers. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I have to say I'm at a loss for the, for the Facebook data. That's really interesting. Um, but I think we also have to take into account the rise of legal blocks, um, and, and that really sort of cuts against uh, a lot of the things that we were think- saying just a second ago, right, which is that lawyers don't want to share publicly. They don't have time to do this stuff. Um, uh, you have uh, a huge, an explosion of legal blogs where attorneys are basically participating in something uh, sort of in an indirect way, right? You could say they're participating in the legal blogosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that uh, is, a, is a very hopeful sign. Um, I think that the more and more that happens, the more we begin to approximate other communities that really do have a shared uh, online participation. Maybe lawyers just have a heightened sense of what they own versus what other people own, and they're less willing to write uh, in. They're less willing to join Facebook, which Facebook owns, but they're more willing to start their own blog, which they can own and which they can push out that content to the world. Absolutely. I think that that's true. I mean, lawyers love the the small print. um, And obviously, a lot of law is about possession um, and control. (laughs) Or maybe Uh, it's maybe it's cynical. Maybe it's uh, that there's a, a clear marketing objective involved. 
Right, right. And that cynicism, I mean, that's an interesting uh, point as well, right? Uh, there's a great book um, by a former dean of Yale Law School named Anthony Cronman uh, called The Lost Lawyer. Um, and uh, really, you should read it. I, I hope I, I do an okay job of uh, paraphrasing one aspect of it. But basically, he talks about the devolution of lawyers from sort of statesmen who really did look at the big picture um, to uh, to people that come in and just deal with very small pieces of litigation or very you know the clients come and go you know within a matter of a year as opposed to decades. And uh, the hours are so extreme that there's really no room for sort of personal development or to develop uh, the profession as a whole. Um, and I think that that trend uh, uh, is unfortunately real, and I think it might be part of why we haven't been able to see lawyers uh, work together to create some of the, the fantastic resources that we've seen in other professions. So we just, we're, we're focused, we're task-oriented, we do the next thing, and then the next thing, and the next thing. And that's, that's right, that's right. We're sort of, we're unable to see the bigger picture sometimes, I think. Uh, that's well. It's an interesting observation, although it smacks a little bit of like nostalgia, you know, like that. That where have all the Atticus Finches gone? <laughs> right. right, and that's fair. Um, but you know, I, I'll never forget when I uh, swore into the New York bar. Um, you know, we, you know, you wear a suit, you go in. It's this big ceremony, and then the judge who was provi- uh, presiding over it said, uh, "You know, welcome to the bar. This is a time when lawyers are not held in high esteem." <laughs> and <laughs> it was sort of depressing, right, on that day that you're welcome to also be told <laughs> this. And so, I think that you know, although there's a good chance he's been saying that for decades. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's true. That's true. I, um, but you know, I think that there's a certain cynical branch of sort of this is how lawyers are, and that's just how it is. And I think that you know that that's I think that should be examined. Um, I think that we really should be constantly uh, trying to to better ourselves as a profession. Um, I, I I would hope so. So now, so I want to go back to case text and talk about because this is this is what case text is all about, right? Is trying to get lawyers to participate and to to add value and give it away for free, basically. And right. Well, right. Right. Um, basically, yeah. I mean, there's other things we do with data science to also curate uh, the database, but, but oh, yeah. by and large, absolutely, uh, this is the, the central the central theme. And so, so what what have you found is actually gets lawyers to do that? I mean, have, have you found? Do you feel like you've sort of nailed it down as to here are some of the things that we can do that will actually get lawyers to show up and contribute and share and connect and all that kind of stuff. Right. Well, I, I don't think we've nailed it down. Um, I think it's more art than science, and I think that you know we're constantly learning as we as we continue to to do this. Um, we found um, that having specific topics that uh, we present to attorneys has sometimes been effective. Um, I, I think saying just sort of participate and not giving any direction or suggestions hasn't been as effective as sort of saying, "Hey, here's a great case," or "Here's a recent development in, in statutory law. We'd love to get your opinion on it." And do you, so, do you actually reach out personally to lawyers and ask and like try to drag them in? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and hopefully, it's less dragging and more inviting. But yeah, sometimes. sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, no, yes, absolutely. Um, where we uh, are, we've hired a team that really focuses on discrete communities and really mm-hmm. is working on on talking to those folks um, in each one. And then, what about do you do partnerships? I mean, do you? Uh, you're not selling case text um, like say fast cases, so right. you don't. You don't go into a law firm and try and sell them case text, but do you try to do you try to have like partnerships with bar associations or law firms that you know kind of get people to use case text and hopefully contribute more? Right. So absolutely. So one of the things that we're building now too is institutional pages. Hmm. Um, so we found that at a lot of these major firms, you'll have you know a dozen uh, legal blogs, all of them quite good. 
Um, and instead of just pulling in each individual attorney in their blog um, or practice group in their blog, we're going to create a system so your whole firm can have a page. Um, and then the various attorneys are sort of all linked to that. So, so a piece I of it is really giving them something to brag about. Exactly, exactly right. And I think that um, really to scale this, I think it's very important that we're able to interact with organizations as a whole, right? So I'm sort of get the whole ACLU involved, right? Or sort of get the whole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, we've done that with some organizations and uh, nonprofits, and we're absolutely going to continue to develop that. Well, and you, you just threw it in there at the end, nonprofits, but this has been something that I've been thinking a, a lot about is um, I, I just started volunteering again um, after a two-year hiatus that my wife made me promise to dial back my volunteering. Um, <laughs> I, I had a problem with saying no. Um, so so I'm, I'm back volunteering, and one of the things that frustrates me a little bit is that so much of the knowledge about the day-to-day -day work that you need to do, I, I, my, the, 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 I volunteer for a clinic, and it's one of these, it's two hours, um, and anybody who shows up at the self-help center in the court can sit down and talk to a lawyer. Okay. Um, assuming they meet the income guidelines or whatever. But so I'm sitting there and I'm sitting there with one of the resource attorneys who his head is full of the information that I need, right? Mm -hmm. Like he knows that the people over at conciliation court will help you between 11 o'clock on Tuesdays when there's a full moon. And I don't know that. And it's not written down anywhere that's easily accessible to me. Um, and so, so I've been, been kind of thinking like, how can I, how could I help this organization, the volunteer lawyers network, um, m make that information more accessible so that um, Glenn doesn't have to be sitting there with new attorneys and, um, you know, leading us by the hand and sharing that information with us. And to some extent, he has no incentive to, right? Because this is, this is the value that he brings to the organization. Um, but at the same time, it makes it really hard to provide access to justice when all that information is locked up in everybody's heads. Right, absolutely. And, and we've heard that again and again from uh, a lot of the organizations that we've talked to, right? The, the left hand, uh, maybe it's not the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing, but the left hand not knowing that the right hand just did a memo on this, right? Like, yeah. And, uh, and, and it's a key problem. Um, and I think it's one actually that's not just uh, a problem with nonprofits. I think large firms also have this issue. Um, and I know uh, Casey Flaherty uh, is doing great work um, sort of developing a, a test for law firms to make sure that they do have proper knowledge management. Um, so I, th I think it's a real issue. Well, no knowledge management is hard, right? I mean, I assume uh, you, you have to have talked about private annotations at Case Text, I assume. Yes, those are coming. Oh, okay, they really are. Because I mean, because yes. a piece of it is... Um, I I was talking to um, uh, a, the people at a new product called Metajure. Um, it's not, I guess, it's not that new, but it's a document management solution that basically just does Google on your in all all of your devices, right? It just sucks up all your data, right? OCRs it, indexes it, and then gives you <laughs> access to it in the same way that you would with Google. So no more filing and uploading and all that business, right? And and it, it's always seemed to me that in order to succeed at something as complicated as document management or knowledge management is really what they're doing, um, you have to make it uh, – it has to require no effort on the part of the individuals who are actually trying to use it. Um, and so I kind of wonder, like, is it just too hard to cooperate at the, or to participate at this point? Are, are there – is signing up for a user account a big enough barrier that a busy lawyer won't even show up and do that much? 
Right. Well, and in fact, you've hit on something very important. Um, when, when we approach firms that have existing blogs, um, the fact that there's no cost and no effort required is a big selling point for them. Right? Yeah. Sort of the first two questions they ask. Um, and in fact, even creating the institutional page is something that you know we can do for them. Um, so uh, it, it is. I think they like it when they just do nothing and suddenly see this added value, right? And see this added uh, visibility for their work. Um, so I think, I, I think, yeah, there's a, there's a ways to go on it. Um, and I think the, the only issue with the sort of just Google everything approach is that you have to also keep in mind the, the, pro, the workflow of law, right? It's such that, you know, when I'm doing case research, I want to see certain analysis mm-hmm. when I'm writing, right? The d- declaration, I might want to see other documents. And so a sort of, there, it's rare that there's a one size fits all search bar that's going to work for every stage. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that, uh, companies uh, like case Tech and other companies that are trying to, uh, uh, to bring document management into the workflow are, are really working on. Yeah, it's I, lawyer sourcing is fundamentally different than your typical view of crowdsourcing, isn't it? Exactly. So if I were going to start the next um, social network for lawyers or um, the next like you know local knowledge annotation management tool or or just a wiki for Minnesota pro bono lawyers, what what kind of things do you think that you've learned that I could apply to a project like that? <laughs> well, my first advice, of course, would be to send your resume to case text. Right? You don't need to <laughs> um, but I think that, uh, uh, I, I'd say there's, there is no substitute for sort of elbow grease here and really reaching out to folks and talking to them directly about it. Um, I think what you said earlier, I think uh, minimizing the sort of activation energy on their end uh, is critical um, and really making it so that they uh, you know, can do very little, at least in terms of their original content. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, their pre-created content, right? You really want to suck that in. And I think then there's a, a chicken and the egg issue a little bit, which is that you want to have a lot of people visiting your platform so you can show them. Because, you know, when people write things, they want it to be read, right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the things they want. Um, and we found that uh, uh, getting a lot of traffic, which we did through having case law, you know, there's certainly other ways you might do it, um, has helped um, with the pitch. Um, but, sure. Um, so th- those would be a, a few things, right? So being think, able to show a, a return value if you participate. Right. And we actually, I mean, uh, you know, it's not essential. One thing that has worked on, for us is, uh, you know, having communities where you can actually see who it is that follows the community, right? And who mm-hmm. uh, is looking. Um, so these would be things. I think it's all sort of known stuff, right? I mean, it really, there isn't, I think, a sort of secret trick that nobody else knows, right? It's well, you just, know what? Maybe the secret trick is um, is one of the things that you've mentioned a couple times now, which is... Um, it, it always feels like things like the like things that go explosively popular like Facebook are um, it just sort of happens right? right there's this passive aspect to it like we put it out there and it was so useful that everybody loved it and told their friends about it and it just happened right but what you said I'm sure. sorry go ahead no no please but you're absolutely right and once it starts happening then it really really happens almost on its own it sort of snowballs right yeah but it sounds like what you're saying is that that's it's not always that easy sometimes you actually have to go out and sell and sell your platform even though you're offering it for free even though it is totally sweet and has self-evident value sometimes you have to actually just go and sell it one person at a time I think that's right. That's right. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. I think also as the generation shift, I think that that is something that may make it easier for this sort of thing. I can give you a, a specific example. So um, one of the projects that uh, we've been doing is um, working at advanced legal research classes at law schools. And 
basically the one of the challenges in teaching legal research is you don't want folks to over rely on the citators, right? You don't want them to just see the the red flag and say nothing left to see here, mm-hmm. when in fact you know a case is still good law for certain points. So we realize, hey, one good way to sort of not to not have that problem, right, is to have students actually walk a day in Frank Shepard's shoes, right? To have them actually be their own shepherds for a day and read two cases and create their own concise citator entry mm-hmm. uh, to do it. And um, so we, we did this and, you know, our platform makes it very easy to, to create citator entries. And I was a bit worried that the students would be, you know, opposed to having the, their work that they created, you know, part of this free platform. And, you know, quite the opposite. They took, they, it was the most natural thing in the world to them to have their <laughs> citator entries now available for all to see next to their, their name. Oh, interesting. So, so I, I do think that, um, you know, there is a lot of this stuff in terms of crowdsourcing, in terms of social networks and uh, sort of communal cooperation um, is sort of becoming much more embedded in the DNA of just people generally um, as, as the new generation comes. Well, you know, I'm always reluctant to, uh, to push that narrative of, you know, the next generation is going to fix it because, uh, you know, I see so many law firms that seem to think that just because they've got a young associate, that person is qualified to be their IT department. Um, (laughs) But but you're talking about a different thing, which is um, attitudes about sharing and publishing and public information and um, all all that kind of stuff. Attitudes are changing. And so the the sort of um, the hoarding, secretive, siloed nature of maybe current or former or older lawyers, it might give way to an attitude of openness and sharing. That's right. And I wonder, um, I don't know if there's data on this, but for lawyers under the age of 45, uh, how many of those are on Facebook or how many under 35 are on Facebook? Right. I, I wonder if there's that's part of it. Um, uh, of course, you know, uh, excite, willingness to cooperate is no substitute for wisdom. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, you really what you want in an ideal world is people who've had decades of experience uh, contributing to the system. Um, and I just think that um, that that will take time. Well, you've given me lots to think about, actually. All right. <laughs> because I, I, this is a, you know, we, we've built our own community as part of Lawyerist, and this has been something we've, uh, a problem we've been trying to solve or, or figure out ways to do it for years. But I, but I really am interested in how this applies to access to justice, and you've given me some takeaways that I'm going to go and turn over in my head and think about for a while. So, All right. Well, thank you so much, Sam. And please, anytime as we as we progress, I'd be happy to, to chat with you more about it as we go along. Fantastic. Uh, and for our listeners, uh, Pablo is at Case Text once again, which is casetext.com. And if you found his discussion of blogging compelling, you should check out Case Text's feature Legal Pad, which is a beautiful uh, blogging platform built around case law, of course, um, where you can publish your own legal analysis if you don't want to take the time to set up your own blog. So check it out. um, And uh, thanks so much once again for being with us. Thank you, Sam. This episode of the Lawyers Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years. And here's the thing. When I was answering the phone, I was often distracted. I might be in the middle of reading a brief that pissed me off from opposing counsel uh, or dealing with something stressful or that I really needed to focus on. And so the phone rings, it's an interruption, kind of drives me crazy, and I'm never at my best. That's not the face I wanted to put forward to clients. So when I got Ruby, the whole thing changed for two reasons. First, because Uh, The ladies at Ruby are fantastic on the phone. They're cheerful, they're friendly, they're helpful. And 
what happened is that people would regularly say, wow, I just had such a great experience with your receptionist. And second, because my instructions were that anybody who asked for me by name should be put straight through to me. The way that happens is it's a soft transfer, meaning the first person I hear from is a receptionist from Ruby who says, hi, this is so-and-so from Ruby Receptionists. I've got so-and-so on the phone and they're calling about this. Should I put them through? And so I have the opportunity to say, no, tell them to call this person, tell them I'll call them back later, please take a message, or sure, put them through and I'll talk to them. And just that little bit of buffer meant that by the time I got on the phone, I was prepared for the conversation and I could be in a much better mood. Hiring somebody to pick up my phones and answer my phones for me that is as friendly and professional and helpful as Ruby was one of the best things I did for my practice and for my sanity and productivity. So you should check out Ruby, and you've got no reason not to because it's free for 14 days. And if you check them out by going to callruby.com slash lawyerist, they will also waive the setup fee should you decide to stick with them. And if you sign up for the trial, they will take good care of you, and I'm pretty sure you will want to hire them in the end. So go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and find out for yourself. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.